This is Healthcare Matters on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Healthcare Matters is a program that delves into healthcare policy and issues. The hosts are not medical clinicians and they're not able to offer advice about medical conditions or diseases. You're always encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford Healthcare, hosted by Rebecca Stewart and Elliot Joseph. Good morning and welcome to Healthcare Matters on WTIC News Talk 1080. This is Elliot Joseph and first and foremost, I want to wish everyone a happy Veterans Day and a big shout out to all of our veterans across uh, the entirety of Connecticut and our country. Um, it's a, a day for us on this show with Rebecca Stewart, my co-host, to reflect a bit on the origins of Healthcare Matters. Uh, about six years ago, we started down this path. And it was uh, for us to open up a conversation across the state of Connecticut about health care and health care transformation, health care reform. And over these years, uh, we have certainly had a lot of interesting and uh, incredible conversation uh, with folks who come on as guests who are national thought leaders in the industry with all different kinds of perspectives. We've talked with them about what's working, what's not working, what's driving innovation and transformation. And how do we bridge the gap? How do we keep moving forward to improve the healthcare delivery system in this country with lots of work yet left to be done? And it's been such a journey. Healthcare, of course, a topic that touches each and every one of us at some point. But for all the talk about change, we keep coming back to that question. Are we there yet? I think Elliot said that first. No, no doubt the U.S. struggles to provide healthcare for everyone at a reasonable cost. Yes. And today we are really privileged to have a couple of Great guests with us this morning. Uh, first, we have Governor Mike Levitt uh, with us. Mike is the former governor of Utah. He had the privilege of serving that state with three terms and transformed the state's healthcare delivery system. And we certainly want to hear his experience in that regard. And after that service for the state of Utah, he went on to join the cabinet of President George W. Bush, first as the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency and then as Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, we are very honored to have Governor Mike Lovett with us this morning. Secondly, we are joined by our friend Matthew Weinstock. Matthew is the managing editor of Modern Healthcare magazine. Modern Healthcare is well recognized by those of us in the profession as one of the most highly regarded healthcare journals. And Matt, as, uh, as the, the managing editor, is also a recognized healthcare thought leader. So we're going to have a really great conversation today. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. We actually are going to start this morning with Governor Levitt. Now, we want to sort of delve into your history and how you arrived where you are. Why, why this passion about health care? Well, first of all, uh, Elliot and Rebecca um, and Matthew, nice to be with you. Um, health care has, I think, is a deeply personal experience uh, or, or subject to everyone. Uh, I must admit that uh, my serious introduction to health policy uh, came uh, as a result of my service as governor. Uh, I was elected as governor in uh, 1992, which was on the uh, cusp of the Clinton uh, health care uh, uh, initiative. 
health care has been a very significant economic problem in our country for many, many years, even before that. But during that period of time, uh, uh, we struggled to uh, reinvent the way health care happened in our state. And the result of that, uh, I became deeply interested in it. And over the course of the nearly 12 years I was uh, governor, and then the four years I was secretary of health, my life was immersed in it. Governor, um, as you well know, uh, Utah is not the only state struggling with the whole notion of how do we finance health care uh, in every state in this country. What were the what were the, um, the the things that you saw and were experiencing in Utah specifically that drove your attention uh, to the conclusion that things had to change and had to change dramatically? I suspect what caught my attention initially. Uh, again, I was serving as governor, but I uh, could see that Medicaid, which is uh, health care for uh, those who are economically disadvantaged, was beginning to take a bigger and bigger component of the state budget. Uh, when I was elected governor, it was about 6% of the, of the budget. By the time I had concluded my service, uh, it was in the high teens. So if you begin to... Rem- to uh, recognize that every dollar that uh, uh, leaves, uh, that has to go to pay uh, for Medicaid, uh, and unless you're going to do radical uh, uh, increases in taxes, or unless the economy is growing very rapidly, um, those dollars come from somewhere. And we were struggling with big growth in our state. Our infrastructure was uh, was uh, in need of repair. We have uh, a very unique set, uh, situation in Utah with a high number of school children that were emerging. Uh, and it was just an economic equation that wasn't going to work. And so we knew we had to do better with what we had, and we had to find better ways of, of, uh, of keeping people healthy. And uh, I think that equation, uh, plus the fact that as governor, you, you have routinely experiences where you're approached by people who are having very serious problems because of health care expenses. And you're confronted with the reality that, yes, we want to help these people. And at the same time, we have to keep our economic equation in balance or it begins to have other impacts. That conundrum uh, uh, caught my both attention uh, and my imagination. You talk about leadership and compassion, this sort of like these two battling sides, and you wanted both. Well, I, in my mind, that's the conundrum that we still face in America. We are a compassionate nation. We want to be in a community, uh, in a nation, uh, it, it, where people are cared for when they're sick or when they're injured. Uh, we want to keep our, 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 our country, our population healthy because it's a key to our economic vibrance as well. On the other hand, uh, we have to be economic leaders uh, if we are going to be able to afford uh, to be compassionate people. And so you have to have both. If you give up economic leadership, you give up along with that your capacity to be compassionate. On the other hand, if you give up compassion uh, just because you don't want to spend the money, you give up an a very important part of the American uh, ethos. Uh, Governor Lovett, can you uh, reflect on several specific 
changes you made in the Medicaid program as governor of Utah that affected the kind of changes you were looking for? One change we made that I think has been important in a historical way to learn from is to recognize that not everyone uh, requires the same kind of assistance that other groups did. Medicaid is made up of many different groups. There are those that are referred to as mandatory population. Those are primarily children and pregnant mothers, uh, the blind, the aged, and the disabled. And we had expanded that population uh, during my time as governor. But as other populations began to be added, we realized that there were certain of those groups that may not need to have all of the special kinds of of, uh, coverages that were required for, say, children or uh, or pregnant mothers. Uh, And so we sought to find a way in which we could provide coverages for certain populations that were more akin to what you would receive if you were in the commercial marketplace. And we found that we could take the savings and we could expand health care to more people. And so we began to experiment with the creation of special networks where uh, citizens could uh, have basic coverage, uh, have what they uh, have the kind of coverage they might have if they were working at a, a, an automobile dealership or a, a mining operation, and we could provide it to tens of thousands of more people as opposed to having everyone have everything, we could have a lot more people have adequate care. Now, that was controversial, but in my mind, it was a very important innovation to experiment with. It was controversial, but apparently you were reelected as you were instituting these controversial policies. Well, there are very few policy decisions in healthcare that aren't controversial because (laughs) Uh, there's always another side, and you, it, 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 that's the basic nature of the conundrum. I'm curious, as you are speaking, and I'm curious about Matt's thoughts and Elliot's as well, but as he's describing this, it's not unlike leading a healthcare organization where you do have to be financially viable if you're going to be there to serve the populations that really need you. Yeah, it's about making the tough decisions, as the governor says. I mean, it's. You know, if you're in a role like being the governor of the state of Utah or any state in America or CEO of any organization, you're making decisions and you're trading off resources uh, to try to maximize the the return to the, the folks you're responsible for serving. Uh, Matt, uh, from a national perspective, as uh, the managing editor of Modern Healthcare, your point of view about this part of our conversation? Sure, yeah, and, and thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think... Uh, Governor Levitt might hit on some key things there. Certainly on Medicaid, um, we have seen, and you just saw it last Tuesday, um, the growth of Medicaid as part of the national debate. You know, when Mike was head of HHS, we were really talking about Medicare and Medicare payment policy and things of that nature. We've shifted now to Medicaid. So we had three states in um, on Tuesday, uh, three ballot initiatives across the country, where voters voted to expand Medicaid, um, where it had been blocked by their legislature or their governor. And then you had a couple other states where the governorship changed, which will make Medicaid expansion more likely in those states, Maine being one, uh, Kansas being another, Ohio potentially. Um, So you're going to see much more conversation around Medicaid expansion. 
already 37 states have expanded Medicaid. And I think also building off of what Mike was talking about um, is that cost conundrum. So, um, you know, as states expand Medicaid, they have to pay for it, as he alluded to. Uh, and so that's where you're seeing in a number of states, um, they happen to be controlled by uh, Republican governorships at this time, but looking for eligibility limitations on Medicaid beneficiaries, so work requirements, you know, where mm-hmm. a beneficiary may have to show that they've been working a certain number of hours or in job training for a certain number of hours in order to get Medicaid. And part of that, honestly, is to control the cost of the growth of that program because states uh, just simply can't afford the expansion that's been going on. So yep. to curb those costs, um, Governor Levitt, you talked about creating a primary care network. That sounds an awful lot about what we're talking about today when, when we know we need more access, access, access to keep people healthier. Was that a piece of what you did even back in the 90s? Yes, uh, I did it under a, a waiver uh, from the Department of Health and Human Services, and uh, we we were successfully able to cover tens of thousands of additional people in our state. Uh, and uh, we went back a few years later and and and, and checked uh, to see if, in fact, it was working, not just in the de- delivering, but were people appreciative of having uh, the, the, this basic coverage. Uh, as opposed to having nothing, and obviously they were. Uh, it was a it was a successful experiment, and I think one that could be uh, that, that we could learn from even today. I, I will mention one other thing that I should not be left out of this conversation. In the late '90s, uh, a very um, well regarded study called "To Air Is Human" uh, was uh, was published, and it pointed out that. Another part of the equation, it's not just the cost, it's also the quality of the, of the medical service. And the fact that there are many parts of our system that are extraordinarily inefficient. And it became much more, um, much more evident that the payment mechanisms we use in some ways create incentives that drive consumption of health care that's either unnecessary or, in some cases, counterproductive. So it's, it, there, are, there are other facets to this that allow part of the equation. We can use what we have better, not just spread it thinner, but actually use the money more efficiently. Yes, Governor, um, I, I appreciate that point of view uh, deeply. And I want to come back as the show uh, continues on this morning to all of what we've touched on, uh, the payment uh, mechanisms, uh, the perverse incentives that arrive from the, the, the traditional payment mechanisms. I'm very curious and want to hear your point of view about the results of the midterm election. And, and Matt and both the governor uh, touched on the future of Medicaid. But I want to take a step back for a, a few minutes here because one of the things I'm so intrigued by in talking to Governor Mike Levitt, the uh, former head of uh, uh, HHS under President George W. Bush, you, you've put forth a proposition that we're on a 40-year journey, and actually you believe we're 25 years in. Um, I, I'm curious if you would be uh, interested and willing to describe that point of view uh, to our listeners, and I also am and, and quite fascinated by the fact that we only have 15 years left, um, what's this going to look like? But but help us see um, 
your worldview here? I, in order to fully understand my uh, my uh, proposition that we are uh, in a very long transition, it's important to see the history of this. Uh, we've been talking about Medicare and or Medicaid rather, and Medicare both became law in 1965. Uh, but alongside that legislation was the need to invent a national payment system. And a system was uh, created where we divided health care into different procedures. Uh, we, we referred, we gave them each a number. They were called CPT codes. And the way health care would be billed across the country would be to use those codes as a means of being able to say, this is the service that was provided, and therefore this is the charge that should be made. And it's called a fee-for-service system. But it became very evident quickly that this system was essentially setting forward a series of incentives that everyone had one basic incentive. It was to provide more and to consume more. And the cost of Medicare and the cost of Medicaid was dramatically higher than it was ever projected to be, and it escalated at rates substantially higher than what they expected. So uh, in the early 70s, uh, actually at Yale, uh, in your state, mm -hmm. a group of academics began to study this problem and began to see that you could group these different kinds of codes into baskets, and it would change the way people thought about it. Well, that was ultimately adopted in the mid-'80s, and I think that was the first point. That begins at least my hypothetical 40 years, when we as a country began to say, we have to change this system, or we're not going to be able to afford it ultimately, because you can't spend 100% of the entire national budget on health care. And so we've been experimenting through the 90s, uh, through the early uh, part of, the, of, of this century, uh, through with the Affordable Care Act. All of this has been a process of learning how to change the way we bill and consume health care. And it, the big transition is this shift from the, the, the system I spoke of, the fee-for-service system, into what is known now widely known as a value-based system, where we're asking the question, who provides the best care at the lowest cost? And how can we pay health care providers in a way that will keep them viable, but at the same time give consumers the best money, or the best for their money? And I think we're about 25 years into that learning process. And whether we'll get it all done in the next 15 years, I don't know. But I do know this, if we don't, uh, the cost of health care will continue to erode our national productivity in a way that will, will, will take us off the leaderboard. I appreciate you explaining that perspective, Governor. And what I hear from you is uh, the primary driving force of change is the economics of health care and the uh, pressure, an, uh, a lack of a productive, uh, value-based uh, delivery system. Uh, has not only potentially bankrupt individuals, which it's doing every day in our country, but bankrupt our country overall over the long haul? Well, we're operating on a cost-plus basis, basically. And we've all had health care bills, and we all know that they're very complex and hard to understand. And, and that um, the, the other part of it is that 
in most cases, the consumer isn't paying for the bill. And so you have a situation where the seller of health care can just essentially bill, bill, bill. The consumer, the, health, uh, the, the patient, isn't the one who's paying, and the third party is just raising the insurance premium. And everyone, I think, now in the policy world recognizes that that is a very uh, significant dilemma. We have to change it. We just haven't perfected a way yet to do it better, but a lot of work's going into that, as you know, Elliot. Yes. Matt, I'd love your thoughts as we're delving into this conversation. Are you seeing folks who are doing it well, who are doing it, who are doing this maybe better than people that we've seen as you look at your global landscape? Sure, I appreciate it. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, and, and Governor Lovett, when he was at HHS, certainly knows um, a lot of where we're headed. Um, you know, I think as you look at the, this idea of value-based payment, one of the challenges is that various segments of the industry, so Elliot, the providers, the physicians, the hospitals, the insurers, all have their, their um, stake in the ground, if you will. So every time the federal government uh, tries to move forward on some alternative payment models, they're sometimes called, we see uh, in various groups, various segments of the industry sort of push back, if you will. So as recently as last week or this week, uh, HHS announced that they were going to try to do some new payment model. It's called a bundled payments, where all the services are bundled into one fee and providers sort of split that pie up uh, as they provide care for a patient. They tried to do this or announced that they're going to do this for cancer care. Physician groups have come out uh, predominantly opposed to that idea or concerned about that idea because it may eat into some of their their profits and revenue. Um, Mike's own group, uh, the Levitt Partners, which we cite a lot, does a lot of research into these new alternative payment models. And uh, earlier this year, uh, they did a study that showed that just about 22% of physicians they surveyed um, believe that something called an accountable care organization, which tries to coordinate care across the delivery system, just 22% of the groups they surveyed thought that that would lower the cost of care. So you're seeing these various segments of the industry um, not fully ready to relinquish the fee-for-service model. Um, I'll also tell you that, uh, to your question, there are certainly groups that are doing it well and um, being able to lower cost, improve quality of care. A lot of times they may own their own insurance product, so um, an Intermountain Healthcare or a Geisinger in Pennsylvania or Kaiser out west. Uh, they own the whole cycle. They own the patient. They own the insurance model. They own the providers. We just had a conference in Colorado where um, we had some panelists from different segments of the industry, uh, some providers, some hospital systems that were sort of moving forward on value-based payment. But then we had a couple, Marshfield Clinic, for instance, in Wisconsin, that is in this fee-for-service world, and actually that's working for them. So they're not ready to move uh, to what Mike alluded to, is these value-based arrangements, because their market isn't ready for it. And, and perhaps Mike can talk a little bit about the, the economics of different markets, because you can't move the entire country at the same pace. Yeah, I, uh, I, I concur completely with what you're saying, Matt. Um, and in fact, in our market here in Connecticut, uh, Hartford Healthcare, the organization that I have the privilege of being part of, we've made huge investments in being ready for the shift to value-based 
at-risk payment, and we've actually just launched a partnership uh, with a health plan, one of the leading health plans in Medicare Advantage in the country, as our partner in introducing a new Medicare Advantage program here in Connecticut. Uh, so we feel like we're trying to drive this, but at the same time, and I'll leave this question hanging as we get ready to break for the news, uh, we look at the federal government, and we've gone most recently from a leader of the Center for Medicare uh, Services, the federal agency uh, being run by a physician, Dr. Tom Price, who had one point of view, and now Alex Azar, who has a 180-degree different point of view. Let's cut there. We're going to go to the news, and I would love to hear both of you uh, give us some advice as provider systems on how to navigate through this. Be right back. Welcome back to Healthcare Matters on WTIC News Talk 1080. You are listening to a um, conversation this morning uh, between Governor Mike Levitt, the former governor of Utah, who served three terms as governor and then went on to join the cabinet of President George W. Bush as uh, the administrator of the EPA and then as Secretary of Health and Human Services. And we also have Matthew Weinstock with us, who's the managing editor of Modern Healthcare Magazine, a nationally recognized publication in the healthcare sector. And this is Elliot Joseph. I'm here with Rebecca Stewart. And um, before the break, I was posing the question uh, that in some way relates to the, the politics of healthcare, which we could spend not only one show on, but maybe a lifetime talking about. Uh, most recently, and for those of us who really do hope the federal government will help identify changes in the payment system, because they are um, the largest purchaser of healthcare in this country, uh, that the, 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 more, the more recent leader of CMS, the Center for Medicare, um, was an independent physician who did not believe in value-based payments, uh, believed in the sanctity of the private practice of medicine. And today we have a new leader at CMS who I would say has a 180-degree different point of view about the need to move to value-based payment. Uh, so there's this level of instability and uncertainty in the political environment driving uh, how the largest purchaser of healthcare in America will pay for healthcare. How do we deal with that as a country uh, and as a healthcare industry? Uh, Governor Levin, I'm going to turn to you first. Well, uh, first, uh, the period of time during which Secretary Price uh, was at HHS. There was uncertainty because he sent uh, mixed signals about the direction. Uh, Secretary Azar has been very clear that he and the President of the United States can see the imperative that we need to shift this system. So it was a, a momentary pause, but and I think it did uh, cause some uncertainty in a in a uh, an industry that isn't all that crazy about changing anyway, uh, and that's unfortunate. But the reality is this isn't entirely being driven by politics. It's being driven by economic imperatives that we have to change or the economic equation of the country is going to be uh, deeply uh, injured uh, in the long run. And that's in my mind. It's it's it, it, yes, politics is playing a big shape and a big case, a, a part of how it's rolling out. But economics is driving this. 
Matt Weinstock, managing editor of Modern Healthcare. Your reaction? Yeah, and I think Mike's right. Obviously, a big part of it is um, financial. When Secretary Price was uh, forced to resign, which really had nothing to do with his leadership of uh, or direction of policy, but had more to do with um, some ethical lapses in terms of taking private planes and things of that nature. Uh, he had sent signals, as Governor Levitt said, that suggested that they would uh, Medicare would move away from sort of mandating. Um, some of these new payment models to being voluntary, which the industry actually happened to like. They like voluntary over mandatory. Mm. Um, Secretary Azar has sort of straddled both. So he's done some things that I said earlier. He's pushing forward with a mandatory program on cancer payment um, that would be bundled. He's done some other initiatives that are uh, more voluntary. The CMS, which runs Medicare and Medicaid, has carved out, this is part of that mixed message, they've carved out a number of physicians from uh, having to comply with alternative payment models, so they're able to stay in that fee-for-service world. So we still see some of that mixed message. I'd like to come back, though, to something that uh, Governor Levitt alluded to earlier, and and part of this move to value-based payment is that word value. So it's not just about, you know, the money, right? the exact dollar amount that a provider gets. It's about are you getting quality care at the end of the road? And one of the challenges, and Elliot, you could certainly speak to this, one of the challenges that we hear from our readers and our audience is that the value-based payment models are really focused on process measures. So did you give someone an aspirin when they came into the hospital? Um, did you provide X number of uh, X procedures or, you know, um, it's not the, the challenge is coming up with the outcomes measure. So yes. did the patient actually get better at the end of the road? And so that's one of the things that we're seeing the industry sort of wrestle with. And um, one, to, to add to that, Matt, and I'm curious your thoughts, Governor Levitt, that one of the things that has come up on this program quite a bit is would you be willing as a patient, are you willing to pay more for a better outcome? Kind of tying in just what you say, that's important to patients. Yeah, absolutely, and and we've seen that in studies that um, look at that outcome. Would you pay more for an outcome? And you know, most patients would say yes, right? That you're going to pay more for uh, for a better outcome of your of your care. Um, but at the same time, you you for patients that have insurance and coverage, you know, you expect a certain level of coverage when you go in to see a provider. Yeah, I, I think uh, Matt, the question you're raising here is such a real and central question um, to our ability as a country to move to value-based payment. Because if you can't measure the outcome or the value per se, you then go back to other measures that really don't speak directly to the value, such as you mentioned process outcomes. Did you give aspirin at the right time, uh, for example? Um, Or uh, you're giving uh, access measures. Uh, Those are important measures, but our, our industry for a variety of reasons, suffers from an inability to really develop a um, a core set of outcome metrics uh, that all stakeholder or most stakeholder groups can agree to. And I, I think solving that conundrum is central to really moving this country forward. Uh, but I, I don't know how it's going to emerge. Uh, we struggle with that every single day here. And I'm curious, Governor Levitt, your point of view about the ability of this industry to measure outcomes 
like a manufacturing company might measure its production outcomes. It's much deeper than stars. <laughs> yes. Let's just acknowledge that healthcare is very complex and that this is a hard problem and we're not very good at it. But it's one of the reasons it takes 40 years. Right. Uh, we are making progress. Um, there are other issues as well. For example, how much choice should a patient have? Um, Elliot, you run a healthcare system. You know that if you have a patient's full loyalty and you can count on that, you can provide the care much less expensively than if you're just getting a piece of it here or there. And so we've seen that issue become prominent. Uh, are you willing to commit to operate within a system where you can deal with those economics? Um, we've seen other industries go through the same thing. The airlines, for example, uh, I, I am a very a frequent flyer, and I tell people I'm a husband and I am a father, but uh, the title I value the most is Diamond Medallion. <laughs> and, and, and the reason uh, is that uh, they have... They have. We made a deal. If I'll fly on their planes most of the time, they'll treat me better. And um, th we're seeing the same thing happen in healthcare. Yeah, I, 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 I agree completely. And we are trying desperately to wrap our arms around this notion of becoming and building a true system of care. And today. Uh, at Hartford Healthcare, and I know there are other organizations like this around the country, we happen to be uh, the state's largest provider of home care services. We're the state's largest provider of behavioral health services. Uh, we have a very large, tightly integrated physician group. And at the same time, as we've tried to install, and we have installed uh, a meaningful electronic health record, um, we struggle uh, with other pieces of the system of care that are related to us in different ways. Um, with interoperability mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, we, we've put out a, a proposition in the region that we serve that our vision is we want to be most trusted for personalized, coordinated care. Um, and, Mike, that gets to your point of, that you just expressed, that, yes, if we could create those kinds of trusted relationships with people in our community and we were able to deliver the system of care, one of the components is our ability to have interoperability in our uh, technology platforms. And that has been, for reasons that escape me, uh, unachievable. And so I'm interested, again, in both of your perspectives about that issue. How do you get those private practices that you work with, that you rely on each and every day, to be a part of that journey with you? So if I, if I can, there are a couple things there that I'd add to. Um, one is just uh, an observation. So I'd say over the past year or two, uh, as we talk to people for stories, we hear less and less the word patient, and we hear more and more the word consumer. Yes. Mm -hmm. So treat the patient as a consumer, which changes your mindset as a leader of an organization if you're treating them like a consumer. To that question of interoperability or the ability of uh, providers, hospitals, doctors to exchange medical records from one facility to another, um, you know, I'll push back a little bit on, on Mike on this. When he was head of HHS, that's when the electronic health record uh, movement really began, the creation of the Office of the National Coordinator. That's a position within HHS that really drives the EHR policy. The idea then um, was to let the industry sort of figure out how to create standards so that, Elliot, you could transfer electronic data from your organization to another. Well, here we are, you know, some 
20 years, 18 years later, and we're still having this problem of interoperability. Most people will tell you that technology exists, that it's there. It's not a problem of technology. It's a problem of will. And so what we're seeing is a company like Apple come in, and they've got a dozen health systems that have signed up for this. Apple is going to allow patients to keep their EHR on their phone or be able to access it from their phone, and then they can go to any of those providers and be able to share their electronic data. So it's not a problem of technology. Again, it's the industry being willing to let go of those competitive differences that limit it. And as we know from every other niche industry, when Apple or Google or Amazon set their sights on something, they're going to come in and disrupt it. And Apple's already starting to do that. We're going to see Google doing that. They just hired, um, they've hired a number of healthcare executives. So just this Friday, the CEO of Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania, one of the leading institutions in our nation, uh, David Feinberg, he's leaving Geisinger to go work for Google Health to help them with interoperability. So think about how Google has disrupted our world and Apple, and they're taking away, Elliot, your peers to try to figure out that exact question. Yes, you're right. And uh, we actually had uh, uh, Dr. Feinberg on our show as a guest uh, maybe a about times. eight months ago. Well, yeah, a couple, a couple different times. And you're, I think you're absolutely right. And this is, a, uh, you know, the forces at play here, obviously the federal government has a big role to play, but the whole notion of the private sector, I think Governor Levitt, I've heard you quote a, uh, an old friend of mine, Burke, Mark Bertolini from Aetna, uh, who uh, has talked a lot about the answers aren't going to come from inside the traditional healthcare system, they're going to come from places like Amazon and Tesla and Google. Uh, can I just say, this, uh, this is, uh, Matthew's point is, a, is both true and, and highly relevant. Uh, when I was Secretary of Health, I put a lot of energy into trying to achieve uh, uh, interoperability, systems being able to talk to each other. And uh, we succeeded in certain ways. E-prescribing was, an, it was a success, but it was just not happening fast enough. I made the point that we had to do it through collaborative effort, and I think that was right. But uh, the next administration said, well, we've just got to have government more involved in this. And so they started making decisions, and turns out they didn't make the, all the right decisions. And uh, when the new administration came in, um, uh, my advice to them was, what we did was well-meaning but didn't work fast enough. What, what the next administration did was well-meaning but didn't work we now have to turn to consumers, and that's what's happening. We're liberating data. We're creating systems where consumers can begin to organize it according to their need, and it's going to move much more rapidly. I'm involved in now uh, efforts to, to liberate data, to free uh, consumers to gain their own health care data. That's, those are exciting developments, and I'd like to... Um, ask both of you, let's look forward a bit now. We've already started to migrate in that direction. But as we think about what just happened with the midterm elections, um, which have uh, an impact on, on a, a good degree of this, uh, as this, as the country thinks about healthcare policy, as we identify and acknowledge the importance of consumerism ar arriving inside our industry, as we evaluate this notion of you know, what are our options around Medicare, is it Medicare for all? Uh, what is going to happen with uh, the, the, uh, the central pressure of financing healthcare around the Medicaid program? 
as you as you each look forward, what what are your thoughts about where are we headed? Um, let me start with uh, uh, with Matthew. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously the midterms um, shook a lot of things up as we as we talked about. Medicaid expanded in three states. Uh, you had some governorships change that will probably allow for Medicaid to expand in a couple more. We're still waiting to see what will happen, of course, in Florida and Georgia. Um, so you'll see more conversation around Medicaid. Um, I think certainly the, the House switching to Democratic control uh, takes off the table, at least for two years, any serious discussion about repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it'll increase oversight of some of the things that we've talked about that the administration is trying to do on the Medicaid front. So give states a block grant, for instance, to run their Medicaid programs um, or institute work requirements. I think the House will be able to just hold hearing after hearing after hearing. And certainly, as a former secretary, uh, Mike can talk about the challenges that creates when you're just hauled up to Capitol Hill week after week after week uh, to talk, and it slows the regulatory process down. You know, Medicare for all, quite honestly, uh, with a Republican in the White House and a Republican in the uh, control of the Senate, that's probably a non-starter. I think we'll, where you will see that is when Democrats start to uh, file or announce that they're running for president, and then you're going to start to see some differentiation among candidates on the Medicare for all debate. Those are some of my questions. I was curious at what you both thought about single payer in the near, near future. Is that something that you see in our future? And then you had touched on data and artificial intelligence. Um, you talked about this mountain of data, Governor Levitt. I'm curious where you see AI in that role as, as, a, as someplace pushing healthcare forward, making us healthier, making us, be- making us make better decisions. So uh, let me just say I agree entirely with what Matthew said. Uh, The Affordable Care Act is now the law and has been for a time, but it's not going to change. I think we'll see some uh, fluctuation on how people interpret it, but value is clearly the destination. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see uh, consumerism play a very significant role, and I think Congress will continue to squabble about how we finance it. but that, that's the landscape uh, going forward. But to your point, we will also see technology beginning to uh, weigh heavily here, and artificial intelligence is a way in which that will occur. Uh, people can get a lot of answers uh, just uh, from Alexa, uh, uh, from Siri. Uh, and, and they can do it. Uh, we now have pathology where uh, uh, artificial intelligence that can look at a a biopsy of, of a, a prostate uh, and identify cancer that a human eye would miss and do it more quickly. So we're going to see a lot of change being driven, not by Congress, in my view, not by politics, but by economics and the absolute imperative that if we're going to remain the leader of the free world, we're going to have to solve this problem. And can I just come back a little bit to that technology and consumerism piece? Um, you know, it comes back, Elliot, to your organizations to really embrace that. So we've seen some organization um, organizations, excuse me, Ashner Health System, for instance, in Louisiana, they've adopted what they call an OBAR. So patients can come in with their iPad or their tablet or their phone, 
and get, if you will, a prescription from their physician, and then they go down to this O-bar, it's like an Apple Genius bar, and they have clinicians and, and technology people there who help them upload an app to their phone or their tablet, and that helps them manage their disease. And that then translates back to their primary care physician. So that is, that's a partnership that I think Mike's alluding to of consumers and providers working together um, on being able to create some sort of value equation that creates a more loyal customer, if you will, for that health system. Right. Let, let me be a little provocative here because I, I happen to agree with everything you've both said uh, in this segment of our conversation. And um, I'm leading an organization that is hotly pursuing uh, many of the things we're talking about. At the same time, why I'm, I'm on my less optimistic mo- in my less optimistic moments, uh, I don't see how uh, what we're talking about is going to solve the problem because my view, um, it is the 80-20 rule. Um, 80% of healthcare dollars in America are spent by 20%. The numbers are, are close um, uh, of people who typically have multiple chronic diseases. Uh, they're typically um, uh, poor and more vulnerable populations who don't have access, uh, who... Um, I don't think we're going to get at in an effective way um, in in the near term. And I, I'm, I'm, I don't have a great answer, and I'm very, very curious. Both of you, I'm sure, have thought a lot about this question. What's your point of view? Governor Levitt? So I, I think there's a, one really important component we haven't touched on in our conversation, and it is the fact that health systems like yours are not only being asked to be paid differently, you're being asked to assume some economic responsibility, you're putting your balance sheet on the line, and that's that's new. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you are beginning, as all others are, to say, look, if we're going to solve this problem, it can't just be health care. We've got to find ways of keeping people healthier, and there's a lot of things that happen in a community that we can change that will change health. For example, in the 70s, when the environmental movement began to uh, perk uh, we saw cleaning of water and cleaning of air and improvement of the land, and we saw dramatic increases in longevity. The point here is that there are things we now call social determinants of health that are bigger than just a health system. It, it ha- this has to include consumers changing the way they eat and the way they exercise. It has to be uh, us looking at communities and saying, well, how can we solve problems in housing? And we just have to become a better organized society if we're going to have better health. And uh, that is now becoming, uh, that is driving significant change as well. Yes, I agree. We are talking inside our organization and many others like us about this notion of social determinants and how do we collaborate and partner with other organizations in our communities, those communities we're serving, to deal with poverty, to deal with housing, or uh, to deal with food. Uh, Matt Weinstock, your, your point of view? Yeah, I, you know, that's absolutely right. And, and Mike hit the nail on the head that social determinants, much like I had said consumers, social determinants is probably the second most common thing we're hearing from our readers and our people we talk to for stories that they're starting to address. Um, these challenges. And so, you know, we had a, as I said earlier, we had a conference um, last month in Denver, the CEO of UVA Health System, 
Pamela Sutton Wallace said something to the effect of, you know, we used to just treat people as they came through the door. Now we have an obligation, she used the word obligation, of understanding why they come to our doors. And I think that filters back into that value equation, right? If you can understand food insecurity or transportation security, you can get a handle on, Elliot, some of those chronic disease patients, you know, if and we, we have some we have done some stories of uh, health systems that are going into people's homes and they're looking at mold and how to care for an asthma patient and so they will actually pay for going into a house and getting rid of the mold and helping with new curtains and things of that nature uh, because they know down the road it's going to impact their finances because you won't have that kid with asthma showing up in the ED every week instead his disease will be controlled and managed and that frees up the healthcare system to care for the true emergencies. And that is that is key. That's something that um, actually Elliot and some other folks have, there's a similar program that we call Take Charge of Your Health, going out into the barbershops, making sure that you're talking about really hand-in-hand with education. You're talking about the social determinants. If you don't know, you can't make those educated decisions, and that's a big piece of it, too. We had one expert on our program who was talking about if you have a dollar... Spend it on education, and those social determinants will change. And that was an interesting point of view. Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot here, and uh, I do want to thank our guests uh, for joining us this morning. Um, this is complicated, but that is no excuse for um, not being able to make significant progress. And Governor Levitt, you've, you've put a challenge out to all of us that we only have 15 years left if you're going to be correct. <laughs> and and I, I and many others take that challenge very seriously. Um, and uh, the, the notion that you've given us all um, the ability to step back and, and have the long view, um, but at the same time exert pressure on the changes that are necessary. Uh, I'm deeply appreciative of your leadership for the country, uh, Matt Weinstock. Same with you, your ability to convene people, write about stories, educate us all. We're deeply appreciative. This has been Healthcare Matters. This has been Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford Healthcare. Tune in next month as we continue to discuss the status of healthcare, determine what works and what doesn't, and work to bridge the gap. Healthcare Matters on WTIC, News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com. We're-